Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have William Kim here with me in London. Welcome to my podcast, William. Thank you for having me. So as a way of intro, William Kim is the former CEO of All Saints, a global contemporary retail and digital fashion brand with an independent spirit and 3,200 employees across 27 countries. He is uh, now actually starting at a private equity company called Lion Capital and is there going to be now responsible for all digital investments. He has an obsession for design thinking. He loves to use creativity to solve today's business issues to build new future-proof company models. So, uh, William, to kick off, what the most important question for me is always to understand, you know, what, what is your why to what you are doing and have done so far? My why is really to excite stakeholders, and stakeholders are not only investors, it's suppliers, it's team members, it's customers. And if you think about the whole end-to-end process of how business has been formulated, in fact, go back in history from the 30s, and since how businesses are created, valued, how companies develop and evolve, and how many of those businesses created in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s are relevant today. So the why in everything that I do is a company has to deliver great product and service. What I care more about is the business model that we leave behind. So one of my former CEOs, Angela Arendt, who I worked for at Burberry, I finally remember her always saying, it's our duty to leave the company in a better state. And I guess my obsession isn't just leaving the company in a better state, but leaving it in a future-proof state so the business model is relevant for the time. And what that entails is it really is taking a eight to 10 year vision. Now in the world of business where we're trained to deliver 13 weeks, 26 weeks and 52 weeks in a business model, it's hard to sometimes look ahead. I used to live and practice the principles of best practice, but realize actually what happens if your industry is not forward thinking? What if your industry in general is actually a little bit backwards versus other sectors and industries? So if you're benchmarking in that state, have you done your stakeholders any good? And this is somewhat of the challenge that we came across when we started operating All Saints in 2012 is to really say, where is the customer going to be in 2020? And what a fun question. Where is the customer going to be? How are they going to be like? The iPhone was four years old. The Samsung Galaxy was two years old at that moment. And you just knew, you just sensed that the world was going to be very different. We didn't know. And uh, our vision was semi-correct, but a vision is better than no vision. And then there's always this, um, you know, what you know or would like to know about the consumer, the customer and kind of forecast. And then what is it actually that your company stands for? What do you want as a company, right? Because if you have that kind of strong DNA and, and purpose, um, then why kind of always want to forecast what the customers want? I mean, stand for something and then the right customers will come to you, you know? How do you digest those things? I mean, you probably should do both, right? To have consumer insights and, and, and have that strong DNA. But sometimes I think it's many companies are d- 
too much into how do we forecast what's around the corner rather than understand more you know what do they want to develop and what do they want to stand for and and, and work for as well right so I, I think it's the principles a brand is a living human being to me and mm -hmm. do you live life with your head or do you live it with your heart and I think in terms of leading customers some historic insight is really important but if you're overly prevalent with the historic insight you're no longer emotively exciting the customer on the product or the service mm -hmm. so in life being Asian, Confucianism, yin and yang balance, I believe in an, in an equitable balance of both philosophies. Mm -hmm. That historical data insight is important, but more importantly, how do you excite the customers? And in some ways, it's not just the customer. Mm -hmm. How do you motivate and excite your team members? How do you motivate and excite the stakeholders, the owners of the company? Because we're all on a journey together. And I think it goes back to the fundamental principle that at least in the fashion world, we're taught to curate and develop brands to equate to a business model. Mm -hmm. And the, a strong brand becomes a strong company. But if, if the cup equates to a brand on this table, then in my opinion, a company would be the table. So in the initial years, you start thinking, how do we make the best cup? Then you look at the table and say, well, we could have multiple cups on this table. But I think the true leaders of not today, but tomorrow, what's going to be bestowed upon us is how do we make it the room, which is the social enterprise perspective, that we have to take care of not only our stakeholders, but we really have to look at society. At the end of the day, we're all in mega important positions of influence, and it's how do you use that influence across the different vantage points, but I think the most rewarding will be from society. What have we done as a group of colleagues and team members to better society in some capacity. And you see more of that societal purpose built into fashion brands or? What I'm seeing actually, which is very inspiring, is a lot of digitally native brands are born with it, whereas I think fundamentally brands that have existed are almost picking up social responsibility because it's a status quo or requirement. Whereas a lot of the digital native brands, the founders genuinely believe in it you know and i think i'll never forget commencing work with stella mccartney as she embarked her journey to create a company and from day one she was the the forward thought leader i mean in the 90s when it was the uncool she didn't care if it was for cool or for press she cared because she wants to leave the world a better place and i think for me i've always been surrounded by truly inspirational leaders who had clear vision and she was absolutely one of them. And what about this step now going from uh, the fashion industry into private equity where you of course will use your consumer insights and so on. But that's a different step, isn't it? For a person working in the fashion industry. Uh, yes and no. I think at the end of the day within fashion when you work within the brand level, you know, you're in the grass. And I think what uh, consumer investment funds and funds and venture capital funds are doing is they tend to look at the landscape as if they're on top of a mountain looking at a forest. So they have a much wider vantage point. I think they have a huge responsibility in how the makeshift of the future patterns of companies will be. Because I once heard an interesting statistic that today there's more brands owned by private equity firms than they are privately held. Um, so could you imagine? So if the intent is to do good, and I do believe that generally 
a lot of firms have negative stigmas for all for the wrong reasons. Every firm that I've met and engaged and interacted with are literally a group of great individuals, professionals wanting to do good. I don't think anybody wakes up out of bed going, I'm going to make the world a, a worse place. I just think counterbalancing just the pure profits model is this notion of how can we do societal good. And I know that um, All Saints is uh, truly committed to fight human trafficking and, and that you got behind Not For Sale and their work long before it was actually fashionable to do so. What has this commitment, what has it meant for uh, All Saints clients and, and employees? Yeah, It's a terrific story of how we came across Not For Sale, as a matter of fact. And, and the mission of Not For Sale, which is really a great mission, is to end slavery within our lifetime. And the whole model is very innovative in the sense that it's not just a give money type yeah. of model. It really is to create business models so that it can create more benefit, which I think is absolutely fantastic. And it's also a time commitment model, which I think gets you more deeply engaged. We got introduced to Not For Sale through our chairman, Lyndon Lee. So before I even started All Saints, I attended the gala in New York met David, fell in love with both of them mm -hmm. and their vision. And Lyndon was actually the true driver behind our, our connection with Not For Sale. A fact, him being such a humble person that he doesn't disclose, is that he personally is supporting Not For Sale at a magnitude that is much greater than All Saints. Mm -hmm. And um, through that introduction, through David, through being wowed, through seeing the mission, the three of us were in Amsterdam together. After that, it was a no-brain decision to sign. Actually, it was the first long-term commitment I had signed as CEO, and we had signed a 10-year pack to support uh, the not-for-sale organization globally. Uh, wonderful, because it's really um, worth a lot of respect, what they do. So I'm, Absolutely. I'm really fascinated by that. And just to add one other thing, you know, when I started, we actually had not-for-sale products and what we didn't want to do was, uh, I felt a lot of brands were contributing, and I'm not challenging the intent, but what we didn't want third-party perception to be is All Saints is trying to monetize off the relationship. Mm -hmm. So what products we had, I actually ceased making, and we, we fought to work in a different manner with Not For Sale that meant that our teams were in Chimiswata that our retail teams were helping out in Amsterdam. We just had a team down in Chiang Rai and uh, heading over to Myanmar. It also means working with David and his new business models in a whole different way. So if there's a way we can contribute, whether it be from ideation to process to production, whatever it may be. So it's scaling and working in a completely different, but we didn't want to monetize a relationship. We want it to be sincere and it is heartfelt and I think the intent is really focus one is for the individuals that are rescued and what do we do to embedder their lives for the future. And why do you think uh, there are not more companies doing this for example? I actually think the world is bright. I think that more companies will learn about more great causes and they will devote their time. Unfortunately, there really isn't a platform for charitable organizations to be connected with companies, if you think about it. So the large companies go to your usual, 
So, you know, when I started my career in consulting, I gave time to the usual large non-for-profits because that's all we knew of. I think it's a matter of connecting. And there's so many amazing organizations out there that do society so good. I think they will get more partnership with uh, leading companies in the world. Given your, your fashion industry background, what kind of advice would you give to companies, for example, H&M or Zara Inditex uh, Group? Well, I think from a business model, you know, they're far larger, so they, they don't need advice uh, from a smaller company such as our what I've done. But I think it's the ability of how we created our model, which is a forward-thinking model that we think is, is sustainable. The second thing I would just sort of say is we prided ourselves on creating not only all the beautiful clothes, the products, the content with the originality, but I think that model does stand for something that, and it's a fine balance. I get the ethos of uh, democratizing fashion for all, but I wouldn't necessarily do it at the cost of other people who have invested heavily in creativity. And maybe those companies are making less profit because they had to overinvest in design. So I do find it somewhat a little bit inequitable in the sense that you have smaller companies that have done tremendous things to design with creativity. And on one side is a different model that they draw inspiration from this model and uh, they're making it for the mass public. So we could debate probably a whole nother time as to what's right and what's wrong. But for me, business models of the future are ones that are principled, that have ethos, that want to do society good and that people look up to in terms of how the entity makes the product, sells it, they operate and digitize it. Every facet of it should be inspiring. For example, when I go to H&M in Milan and maybe buy a couple of t-shirts to my son and so on and I pay them, you know, 6.99 euro or whatever, 8.99, I almost feel bad. Because I know that there is some, as you say, something has paid the price of this, you know, the human capital, the nature, etc., etc. And then even if these companies are doing great stuff as well for the environment, still they have weekly collections and they have brands and sub-brands and everything to stimulate me to buy more, 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 more on a regular basis. So there is a huge contradiction that I think that people more and more will turn away from. Yeah. And we already see that. And I think I agree with you wholeheartedly because brands create material products. But I think the consumption of it, if you look at the globe, mm. happens in certain markets. Waste and sustainability and recyclability is going to be massive on the future agenda. And what's most exciting for me is... Every generation, and a generation is defined by 30 years, every generation has to stand behind the cause. And if you sort of look at it from the 60s, every decade forward, every generation sort of had a cause and a belief in disrupting society, whether it be equality, whether it be gender equality. And I'm, I'm just happy because I think the younger customers really have a horrible stereotype as they just want things, they're very short-tempered, they think things happen easily. But this generation is the first generation that I'm seeing that believes in sustainability, that is non-materialistic. And I'll give you an example. So in my parents' time, if you ask my 
Dad, can we lease a car? He would be offended. What are you talking about? In our family, we own our house, we own our cars. Hmm. Yeah, we're not one of those families that has to rent a car. No, no, no. In my generation, I'd be like, why would you own a car when you can lease a car and get a new car every three years, 36 months, and not have to deal with maintenance? The next generation, we have public transport, we have great transportation platforms, and if required, I can just get a car for a day. Why even a day for the three hours that I need? And I think they're far more open-minded about a shared economy, a shared ecosystem, which I think actually makes us a better world versus a me, 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 let me own everything in, in perpetuality. So I look at the future and I think it's extremely right. Hmm. No, I'm also happy, very happy for where we're going. I'm just kind of sometimes impatient to see also the bigger companies to play more active, full 360 degree role. But of course, I mean, it's tough because they have shareholders and with that correct. kind of excuse, let's say, correct, correct. then you, you need to be more short term and, and, you know, so, so the outdated business model is not being updated as fast as it should probably. And also, of course, there are companies that have been existed for maybe 100 years. Who's to say that they should continue to exist, right? There is maybe a reason that they should fail in a certain phase because something new needs to be born. Correct. It's almost scary that you mentioned that because a friend of ours's birthday happened in Singapore. And on her birthday, we went to the Singapore Straits Times and bought the newspaper on the day she was born, went to the archives. And uh, after dinner, we went through the newspaper. And as somebody who is a brand builder and a company builder and a social enterprise creator, it was the scariest exercise I ever done in my life because all the brands, and she's not that old, all the brands that we went through didn't exist. And there was only a few brands from those days that actually made it past the year 2000. So I think it was a very stark, stark, realization that yeah maybe in the world of platforms and digitization it takes three five six seven years to build something but regardless if you're an analog business or a digital business i think businesses could be lost in a matter of seconds so you know at the end of the day it's that paranoia that has to drive us to keep building for the future and then now being a part of this kind of investment industry what are you going to invest in and why and so on you have a huge influence that's really interesting potential for you going back to you then what, what would you say is your passion even if it's a word that has been used so much but i'm coming from the the latin point uh, the word patire which is like something that you're really even willing to suffer for if yeah. needed it's so important to you it's not just something you love and think is fun but it's really important what is that to you i think it's um the word equity Partnership is 50-50. I attended a, a course on negotiations uh, at the time at Gucci. Bob Singer, who was our leader, was kind enough to send us, the entire team, to Georgetown for a couple of weeks. And through this exercise, I thought, oh, if you're smart, you out-negotiate out somebody and you're 80-20. Well, that's going to fail. And you learn through the elaborate exercises that you really want 50-50. But let me pose it in this way. Why is it that in the world of fashion, everything has to be made between New York 
Paris, Milan, and London, and consumed majority between the Middle East and South Korea. So in between these markets, they consumed the majority of the products created. On the flip side, why is it that the majority of tech devices are created out in the East and consumed globally and especially in the West? So for me, it's more looking at these vantage points of a very different perspective to say, well, doesn't that yield opportunity? You know, it's giving hope in a lot of sense that, well, actually, maybe there is somebody in Eastern Europe that has a vision to create a tech company. Why shouldn't they be able to? Or maybe there's this amazing kid in Hainan, you know, Asia, and why shouldn't they be entitled to create a fashion brand that's global one day? You know, and I think the world's going to get to that point. And so in everything I do, it really is to do something that nobody else has done and, and to really do it in a way that I think it's time to start breaking down more barriers. We can't just accept status quo. Yeah, so true. And what would you say are like the transformational points in your life that have influenced you the most so far? I don't know what part of the world the saying is from, but... You know, a child, they said, learns how to become an adult by watching the back of their parents' heads and they emulate. I think as you become a leader, and it's a never-ending job of being a leader, you are constantly trying to improve and learn. You learn by watching the back of the heads of the people that you work for. And as you grow on that journey, you're trying to find your identity through it and you're trying to advance at a quicker rate than the previous generation. And that sort of is the end goal, isn't it? Is every parent wants the next generation to be better off. Every leader, as I look down through the teams that I've worked with, if I was able to do something, I would want them to do more. I mean, that's the whole paid forward system. I think what it really comes down to is at the end of the day, we as human beings are no different from a speck of sand on a beach and you have a place in time and what your moment is is what is your legacy going to be it really constitutes what you've taken but how much more you can give and how was your upbringing there was a saying in the u.s i, I spent half my life till i was 18 in asia and half in the u.s mm-hmm. and there was a saying that in school they joke that you're a twinkie which is a cupcake that's yellow on the outside and and white cream on the inside so it's quite a i guess a a negative connotation but for me our family really wasn't first generation so we weren't fresh off the boat as the connotation says but i wasn't born there i was born in guam but quickly my grandmother in asia started to raise me so what i like to think is i think it's rare And it's a privilege to truly understand through all my schooling and experiences from the Western world what that is. But the whole Confucian idealism of filial piety and and the historic Asian values, I also understand and respect that. So in a very unique position to appreciate and hopefully I'm blending the both of it because every society and every culture is amazing and you try to take the best Beautiful. So you, in that sense, you're fortunate. And I sometimes also feel like I'm fortunate because I have a couple of cultures kind of merging into whatever I am right now today. But it really does help 
also in the daily life to have other people's perspective and understand other points of views because it's part of your autopilot in a way you know so um, I'm grateful for that I agree with you and uh, in terms of what you would call like a long-term solution or a long-term formula for businesses what do you believe in is there one formula that should be valid for all yeah the only formula that's going to be valid is be dynamic and be willing to change because the world that we know today is going to be very different from 36 months from now and when I was studying in school we were talking about Panasonic's 20-year business vision and just-in-time inventory those were the two prevailing wind patterns that really was driving business if you were to apply that today it sort of seems comical doesn't it not only does it have to be just in time, you have to talk about an inventory turn model that is exponentially faster than the past. But more importantly, I thought I knew the world, I, threw, I thought I knew my sector, but I'll never forget going to sleep with a pound in excess of 150, waking up four hours later and seeing the plummet post-Brexit. And uh, it didn't stop there. You generally have a sense of political situations and, and the outcome and in various key markets that you operate in. I think I got everyone wrong since that point. So the world today is no longer what we think it's going to be. And I think this is why it's a call that there's two facets. Consumers are changing faster than businesses are. And the second is the macro is not there to support business. So as a business, if you're not agile and dynamic, how do you stay relevant? And then again, more important than ever to know who are you and why you're doing what you're doing, right? Because that's where your base point is. Absolutely. And um, if um, we play and think that you have all kinds of doors open to you and all resources available, and maybe you do already have that, what would you innovate or, or change, be it in your world, in your sector or elsewhere? Yeah, I think the world today is really focused on anything that the consumer sees. A former leader always told me, you got to get to the third level of granular questioning and into the details of any operations. So at the first level would be, how do you wow and bedazzle the customer with technology? And I think a lot of people think that is what digitization is, which is a website, social and connecting. And that really isn't. That's like installing a phone line. That is just about the most basic norm of things that you should be doing. When you bring it down to another level, then it's taking some of the information coming out and applying it to your businesses so you streamline and become far more efficient. But that's what we're all paid to do. And I think if you dig down you know, another whole level to it, it really has to be not assessing you know, a topic that's sexy today, influencer, let's say, getting some influencers and then you drive a brand value. No, that's really not it because in this day, so much of it is bought and so much of it is disgenuine. But rather, in the world of fashion, most business models turn twice a year because that's how the industry is set up. But why? Why do we not change this to four times a year? That way, it's a more nimbler, agile, dynamic. It benefits customer, it benefits stakeholders, it benefits everybody. But we all seem to struggle to change to that. So I I really think it's the unsexy topics that I find super attractive. And I think if we're able to unlock that, the potential of brands today is is enormous. Who should be 
responsible for the brand you think in a company or organization? Somewhat controversial. I think the board of directors in any company has a huge responsibility. And this is a call out to most companies. We were very privileged because our board comprised of our chairman who's a visionary. I mean, he, he sees brands no differently to the, the best, you know, whether it's the Angela Arendt or the Domenico de Soles of the world, Lyndon Lee looks at it in the same capacity. So I've been extremely lucky to work very closely with our chairman in that capacity. But from the sense I get of other boards that I've been exposed to, or you hear stories from other CEOs, you start getting the sense, and you st if you start going through the public records of, let's take the FTSE 100 or the Fortune 500, the board composition is usually defined by age and experience, which I think is quite scary that age is a, a leading factor to determine a board. So first, I have an issue that it's not gender balanced. Second, I have a massive issue that most board members because of the age, aren't digital savvy, but the world and everything that you see around us is shifting at a velocity that the board needs to understand this. So in one example, which I'm not gonna name the company, I had an experience of presenting, the board members didn't understand. And actually it's quite scary that that needed to be done and they didn't understand and it was gonna hold the company back. So to me, I think board composition to be on a board, that's a massive responsibility. But to have the right composition of diverse, gender balance, but idea balance, most importantly, is crucial. And I think um, for all those, we should be questioning, is your board composition composed of this? Or is it a certain type of demographic, a certain type of experience? And is an experience in a sector of 30 years, is that so valid today? Yeah. And at the same time, how do you mix, uh, not in the board, but in like a management group, for example, of leaders or in general among the other employees, how do you mix the so-called experienced, hopefully wise people with the young and mid-aged? Because otherwise you can take away everybody who's like about 50 or whatever, if we want to simplify things. But that's not the case. But how do we marry in companies, do you think, this combined well, I think you said it earlier, you know, that's why the brands needs to have a purpose and the DNA behind it. And when the purpose is so defiantly strong, it doesn't bias on age. You know, you feel the same passion if you're 55, 60 as you would if you're 22. And I think the whole world is, if you work in a region, you don't settle for region's best talent. My goodness. Right? If you operate a company in, in Europe, you have the ability to attract talent from as far north in Tromso, in Scandinavia, all the way south to Sicily, Syracuse, you know, a small town down there, and you have access to all that talent. You should be greedy. We've always sought best talent. You never bias where they're from. And great talent comes in all colors and sizes and shapes. and and I don't think age is relevant anymore. Who cares, you know? You have to think, what is the person's capacity to understand what's going on and interpret it for the future? And I think it's a balance once again, but the only thing I can say is I've always 
had this greed for global talent and to be surrounding myself around the best people so I could learn from them. We took an intern from Boston once and was going to a very nice school in Boston. We always operated in an open communication. So in the old days, yeah, I have an open door policy, open door, but who really comes through the open door? So we we, um, use this communications platform called Google Apps for Work, which allows 3,200 employees to post everything that's happening. So we ran a company on social media, basically. And then we had this great chat tool called Hangout, because at the end of the day, we chat on text, we chat, right? Who emails anymore? So if you think about it in a company, by having a chat set up, the intern started to write me to say, hey, you know what? I actually created a company because I'm massive about music. And in this music, I created um, utilizing chatbots and AI, a way to see price discrepancies and to make a business model from it. And my point at that time was, what is a chatbot? What are you talking about? We continue to ping through the course of the week. And what I found through him, an intern, was he taught me everything about chatbots. <laughs> and today, I'm a much better skilled person. So I actually think it really is harnessing you know, the knowledge. And that's why you have to just have the best global talent, no matter what sector. And that is just something that if it takes longer, we've kept positions open 11 months at times to find the right person, um, if you believe in it. And uh, if there is like one main piece of advice that you would like to give to leaders, how, however you want to define those, what would that be? I think we all need to work, not for the title, not for the compensation, but what's our legacy? What is our legacy um, from a business model perspective? but from a, how do we embedder society? What do we do? Why do we wake up? Why do we go through the motions? And the whole thing is, a fish rots from the head. So we are the head. And ultimately, everything that we do, our actions are watched by everybody. And I think it's how we lead, how we want our legacies to be, will define not only ourselves, but hopefully if you have, if we all dream that grand dream, the next generation will even have grander dreams in that pay-it-forward system I spoke about earlier. And and uh, if you were to give advice to yourself 10, 15 years ago maybe, what would that be? Be daring. Be more daring? Be more. daring. Okay. Live with your heart. Yeah. Don't over-assess. And why? What do you think potentially that you missed because you were not I, more daring? I, I think what it is is with the abundance of facts and information, we mustn't lose focus. We mustn't lose focus that ultimately our jobs are to motivate all stakeholders. You know, you have to inspire suppliers to partners to vendors to customers to employees and stakeholders. Mm. And I think facts don't do that anymore. At the end of the day, the facts can give you a certain foundation, but you have to define what the shape of the building is and how many stories it's going to be. Nobody's going to tell you that, right? It'll tell you how firm the cement and foundation and whatever. So I think this is why yesterday we attended a great event where we heard a brilliant author who spoke about being a pirate. I think to a certain extent, it, it's that. More pirate ship. Absolutely. <laughs> what do you think is the most, most important thing for companies to focus on right now, if there is one common denominator? 
the common denominator is, like I said, when it comes to every company, every product, every service, they're talking about two things, globalization and digitization. On globalization, instead of investing to learn and appreciate the differences in markets, can't bother, so they license the market or they franchise it. Yet it's a core strategy, international. In digitization, nobody really wants to get their hands into it. So there's a head of a strategy or somebody who does digital, and that's their job. It's the entire company's job to learn digital, to be digital, to formulate and get to that third level granular detail I spoke about and embed that in that culture. And I think those are the two things. And in terms of um, metrics, you know, evaluation systems sometimes that we have today are like from, uh, I don't know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on. So are we sure that we are measuring the right thing if we are after this like purpose-driven companies and we're measuring them still on old things? I think the historical measures can't be ignored. So return on invested capital to free cash flow and your profit levels are very, very important. I recently came across Peter Fader, who has an amazing group at Theta Equity um, supporting him. He's a, he's a professor at the Wharton School. And we had this amazing dinner and we started talking about valuation principles of historic companies, um, the VC model. And what I love that he's doing is he's putting the customer at everything. So consumer centricity in terms of propensity to buy new customers, propensity to buy the basket. And it's struck such a chord with me. And we started having this discussion that isn't it ironic that brands and businesses require reports on customers, yet the local beauty salon knows every customer intimately. And isn't that our job to be like the local beauty salon in, in a lot of facets? And that's the type of connectivity I wish and seek and desire in sort of the next phase of wanting because a, how awesome is it to have that connectivity? And we're fortunate. Customers today want to be connected like that. I mean, you got me in my 20s. I'd be like, oh, oh I, I don't want to connect with you. But it's a whole different world today that I think is really beneficial if brands and companies want to capitalize on it. Yeah, and it's almost like, you know, creating communities around, uh, for example, the conference you and I went to yesterday was fantastic. I mean, it, it felt like we were part of that group, all from our different, you know, places and perspectives, but we had lots of things in common, and that's exactly where you, what you want to have with your stakeholders or clients, especially. Correct. But, so to, to finish off on an even bigger scale, if possible, is, is the question about what do you think the world needs most at this time? I think the world needs today, more than ever, is we need to just simply forget our backgrounds. And the beauty is through social networks. The world is getting smaller. I mean, I, I look at my friends around the world and the fact that we're in each other's daily lives through pictures and posts and you know what family members are up to, I think the world is really getting smaller. The scary point is I see nationalistic behaviors uprising every now and then. I'm a firm believer of intelligence and I know the world is intelligent and humanity is intelligent. So, you know, my plea would be the world needs to get smaller. These dividers and walls called so-called nations and beliefs 
needs to come down more because in a smaller world that is built on free trade our generations not only the next your son's generation my daughter's generation but the next generation will, will be in a much better state so people can call me naive but that's what i'm gonna sort of believe in and um, how was to be on the podcast by the way this is amazing I, <laughs> I, uh, do you think i'm asking Weird questions, no, two big I, questions. I think this is brilliant. It's uh, beyond enjoyable, thanks to you. <laughs> thank you. So, um, thank you, William. Thanks for sharing. You're a wonderful person. And if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where should they head? I think the best place to contact me is my email's quite simple. It's William Kim, all one word, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-K-I-M at me.com. And I'd love to hear from people. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, through engagement, I constantly learn. So if you have thoughts and opinions or advices even, please don't hesitate to write me. Great. And also you will find links in the show notes on uh, corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. So uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Acast and uh, share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Share it with people you know would benefit from hearing this. Thanks for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>